If you're looking for great Christian content, we want to encourage you to check out peachtreepress.org. Peachtree Press LLC offers digital products, journals, books, Bible study guides, sermon outlines, Christian blogs, and church notebooks for children and adults. Some products are also available as print on demand. Peachtree Press is a sponsor of this program and a partner in offering authentic Christian content. For more information, check out peachtreepress.org. Welcome back, rappers, to our fourth season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, please hit that subscribe button or follow us for content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com for sermons, weekly blogs, books, study guides, and lots of free stuff. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's program. Uh, has some good news, and that is that we have a notebook, a study guide, like we did for Revelation. It's about 70 pages long, and it's got basically all my notes in there for this section. The bad news is it didn't arrive yet, so it'll be here either this afternoon or tomorrow. Uh, we did rush shipping, but it wasn't rushed fast enough, so, uh, yeah. I just want to mention that my brother called back week. Nice. That's great. That's a praise item. All right. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 1. And we're going to do our best to get through the whole chapter today. Um, I'll kind of narrow our focus on a couple key thoughts. But our goal is I'd like for us to read every verse in the Gospel of John and then kind of take some time to discuss and, and think about the sections of Scripture. And I mentioned that each one of the chapters basically summarizes something about Jesus' personality, about His character. And today it is clear that it is Jesus, the Word of God. Uh, so look at the first two verses. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this is the prologue, it is the introduction to the book, and uh, it, has a, uh, it has a ring to it. In fact, we probably memorized this verse. I was at a, a conference one time, and a guy got up and he said, is there anybody here that can quote the first verse in the Old Testament? And a lot of people raised their hands. So who could quote the first verse in the New Testament? And it was waited a little bit, finally somebody raised their hand. And uh, he said, yeah, go ahead. And he said, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was God. He said, no, that's John 1, that's not Matthew 1. And there was only one person present that could come up with Matthew 1, 1. They hadn't memorized it. But uh, we memorized this because it reminds us that Jesus is the Word of God. He's the mouthpiece of God. So Jesus is speaking on behalf of God. He's revealing the will of God. He's uncovering the mysteries of the Old Testament and throughout his life, he's going to do some things that prophetically several different prophets had said he would do, and he does it. And Matthew tells us when it happens. John uh, leaves it up for us to do a little research. So I'll, I'll try to supplement where Matthew or Mark or Luke say the same thing. Uh, also, John is unique in that he starts with this phrase, the word logos or the word um, and it's not used as many times throughout the New Testament. Here, he uses it frequently, and he'll continue to do that um, all throughout his book. 
And um, another thing, too, when it says the word was God, there are some translations uh, that translate it as with God, but not was God. Uh, there are some religions that do not see Jesus as God. They see him as um, uh, either a great prophet or a great teacher or uh, a lesser version of the Godhead. And that's a dangerous way to think. Uh, last night we were at a gospel meeting and the psalm leader got up and he said, we're going to start with just a little talk with Jesus. And he said, there's some people that probably feel uncomfortable with this psalm, but I'm going to tell you, last time I checked, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. Amen? And then he went right on with the psalm. So, uh, but it identifies Jesus as God. It says clearly, he, was, he is the Word, He was with God, and the Word was God. So when the voice in Genesis 1 speaks for creation, the voice, the mouthpiece is Jesus. And that's really uh, an interesting way to look at the Old Testament. It's kind of like if you ever see a movie or a TV series, and all of a sudden there's this shadowy character that you, you know exists, but you're not sure who it is, and then at the end they get revealed as to who it is, and you're like, oh, it's just a lot coming. Sometimes for me, I watch enough movies that they might as well be wearing a yellow hat. I, I can tell you who it is as soon as the movie starts. But there are others that are kind of shady and shadowy, and, and, and they may be a, a, a victor. They may be a, a, a kind of a vigilante. It may be a hero that's in the background. And so John immediately just pushes Jesus to the front. He said, Jesus is the front and center of the, of the book of John, but he's the front and center throughout the whole Bible. He was there when John 1, or when Genesis 1 was spoken. And then he says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't uh, comprehend it. So this is the creative work of God. Uh, Jesus was there in the creation event. He was part of the creation event. So it's not just God speaking from heaven. Uh, you get the sense that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all present and working. In fact... Early on there in Genesis, it says, And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. So that's the Holy Spirit. So uh, we're getting a clear picture that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were all together in unity creating the world. Yeah. Uh, in my notes, it says uh, that the word was, the word still in the mind. Mm -hmm. The reason. The reason, yeah, the wisdom. There's a, uh, a personification the word, word, logos, means the spoken word. And so Jesus literally is the mouthpiece. And it's why in moving forward, uh, it'll identify him as the Lamb of God, as the Son of God, as the light of the world. He is all these metaphors and copies from the past come to light. And, you know, Paul even talked about how Jesus is the rock, you know, in the wilderness. So uh, he's the light that shines, uh, the cloud that covers uh, and, and, and uh, goes before them. All those things are a reference to Jesus. And so this is a, a really good uh, kind of a picture of the garden scene in all three parts of the God that are working. And it says he's life and he's light. Those are two words to remember in the Gospel of John because later in chapter 14, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus also will call himself the light of the world. So it's kind of like getting the teaser trailer before you see a movie. I'm sorry. 
It's going nuts. I know. It's my dentist. Oh. I had a, I, I had a good cleaning and everything was great. Then came home and out of nowhere this cavity popped up. And it's, it's bugging me. So, yeah. Uh, all right. So he's the light that shines in the darkness, and he is the life that comes from death. Then uh, in verses 6 through 8, we see the forerunner for the word, which is John the baptizer. It says, uh, there was a man sent from God, his name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, capital L, notice that, and all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. That's the paradox, is that Jesus created it, created us, and people don't recognize him. They don't see him. And so he says he is the light. He brought light into the world. God is light, and uh, the light bringer, and yet people still choose darkness. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So this, these are the believers of the word of God. If we follow and adhere to the words of God, we're his follower, we're his disciple, we're his children. Jesus calls his disciples friends a lot, but there's one point where he stops and he, he tries to help them understand. You know, we're, we're, it's not a teacher uh, it's not a um, protege and a, 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 a teacher scenario. He says, we're friends. And that's really the key of John 15. Because if you love your brother or sister, the greatest thing you can do is lay down your life for your friends. So that's moving on through the chapter. He's giving you the highlights. It's kind of like the trailer for the movie. All these highlight reels. This is where he's going. And it's going to start with John coming into the world. And John, of course, is Jesus' cousin, but uh, John has been in the wilderness, he's been preaching, he's been having crowds come out to him. He's not a miracle worker, per se, but he is a preacher and a prophet of righteousness, and it says that Roman soldiers were coming to him, that prostitutes were coming to him, that tax collectors that had been raised as Jews and now working for the Roman government basically were coming to him, and he was telling them what to do to repent, and the other Gospels tell us the gist of why he's doing what he's doing. Uh, what John is saying is there's one primary reason a forerunner goes before, and that is to prepare the way. Now, let me explain what that word means and what this image is. So in, in this day and age, if you were royalty and you wanted to travel, you couldn't take a limousine. Okay? You couldn't take, couldn't take a plane, couldn't take a car. In fact, it'd be very hard to do anything other than horseback or camelback or in some cases, elephant back, okay? But in, in, this, in this scenario, whenever there's a king coming through a territory, there would be someone or maybe a group of people that would go ahead and they would, they would alter routes. They would, like say for instance, the chariot he's riding on has um, a, a width of six and a half feet or seven feet. They knew the measurement. Then you've got the wheels on the outside, and they measure that. And so when you're going to a new territory, they want to cut a nice straight path. And sometimes that's not always uphill, right? So you kind of go around the hills. And so the forerunner is the one who goes before and prepares the way. He moves the rocks. If there's a tree down, he moves it out of the way. If there's anything that would hinder 
that king from making his way into town or into his district, then this guy had to take care of it. And the other part of this is when he comes through, he's got to go to every city or at least to the people and say, get ready. The king is coming. King never comes. It's never a surprise. You know, you can't just, I remember when I was living in Southwest Missouri and George H.W. Bush came through and asked him to pull over at the McDonald's in Marshfield, Missouri and Secret <laughs> Service not had a cow. Because they said, we haven't prepared them. You know, they had to call McDonald's and depart the things. We've got to send some people in, make sure they're not putting anything in those two pickles you get or the smashed, terrible tasting onions. And so they, you know, while they make sure that there's nobody in there that's voted for the other party. You know, they, they want to make sure nobody in there's no spit in the sandwich. And, and he came through and he's like, I just got to stop at McDonald's. So when the king comes through, when a leader comes through, there's a lot of strategic stuff that has to be done. My brother works for SWAT in, um, in Springfield, Missouri. And when President Trump went to visit, they had several teams. And each team was guarding motorcades, and they didn't know which one had the president. So sometimes there will be three Air Force Ones in the air. There will be multiple caravans of cars. And in those caravans of cars, multiple barricaded vehicles that you don't know who the person, who's the dignitary is. So this is a long journey. John the Baptist had to come into the world and tell as many people as possible, the king is coming. And notice how he says, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. That's When we go through this next few chapters, that's, that's the clear thing, is that the king, Jesus, is here, and the kingdom is at hand. And he's about to build his kingdom, which is the church. So for these... John just picks up here right in Jesus' ministry. So these last three, this all this basically happens in three years, uh, his, his ministry. So any thoughts on that before I bounce on to the next few verses? Uh, so that's what, it, that's what a preparer does for the way. Uh, let's go back down here to, let's see, where do we leave off? Um, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you're born into a family, right? You, you are, you're given a name. They give you a birth certificate or uh, a documentation. They assign you a social security number. There's certain things to prove one's, one's name, one's history. And he says that what Jesus is coming to do is to cause people to be born again. So what, he'll, what you'll see here, this little section is setting up John 3, when Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus. So light, John 8, John 9. Life, John 14. Then here, when it talks about this idea of being born, not of flesh, but of spirit, that's John 3. So everything John is setting up for us to see uh, there's a lot to be said about who Jesus is and what Jesus is supposed to do. Not born of blood. In other words, not born into a family, but into a spiritual family. Uh, into the, by the will of God, becoming a child of God. Uh, verse 14, and the word of God became flesh. This may be the neatest verse in this little section. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. 
And even though he's three months or six months difference between him and Jesus, uh, he says he, he was before me. I may be older, but he's, he's ancient. He's, he's before time existed. Uh, John bore witness to him. And then it says, uh, uh, verse 16, and of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, has he has declared him. Well, there you go. As your little clue, verse 18, the only begotten of the Father. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 3, verse 16. So John's setting up all these things that he wants to talk about. He's doing a great job. As the preachers of old used to say, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them and tell them what you told them. That's the easy way to preach. So he is telling you what he's about to tell you, step by step. Uh, another thing, too, that really interests me is the word uh, dwelt among us. The word dwell, it means to tabernacle or to tent. So in like Hebrews, we have the example of Jesus as the high priest. So in the tabernacle, they moved it around all over the wilderness before they built the temple. And they move this tabernacle around, and it's just one big tent. It's got two sections, but it's one big tent. That's what a tabernacle means. So when it says uh, Feast of Tabernacles, just think of it as tents. They're like little, little, little pup tents. They go out there and make crude tents. Uh, you know, they take uh, sheets and tie them to trees, or they post them up like you'd see. And then uh, they would live in a tent for a week and camp out with their kids and say, you know, our ancestors did this for 40 years. And so the, t the temple, or the Old Testament tabernacle, was meant to be a place for worship. And so when you think tabernacle, you think worship. And so Jesus dwelt among us. He came out of the Holy of Holies, and he, he tabernacled with us. He lived with us. And he put on flesh. That's, that's part of it, too. So Jesus, when he put on flesh, even though he's God, could be killed. Uh, Jesus could experience emotions. Jesus got tired. Uh, he experienced uh, anxiousness, as anybody would. Temptations. Uh, in John, we don't see the story told by Matthew and Luke of Jesus' temptation of wilderness, but it's present. So Jesus is—he's tempted like us, and and that's the great, really neat thing is he dwelt among us. He he, he pitched his tent, his tabernacle, and we were all in it. That's kind of neat, isn't it? And it also gives a picture of chapter 14 when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, I'm going to make your tabernacle ready, your tent, your place. Your, in my Father's house are many mansions. There's another house analogy. That are, um, some translations say many rooms. So there's a place that you can dwell with God. Uh, any thoughts on those verses? All right. Well, let's keep moving then. Uh, now, this is the testimony, verse 19, of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So he says, and remember, John the Beloved is the writer. John the Baptizer is the character here. And John, before Jesus came, was saying, The Messiah is coming. The King is coming. So they asked him, Who are you? And he confessed, verse 20, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. 
And they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Well, <laughs> this is the way to say something without saying something. Are you a prophet? No, I'm not a prophet. Well, who are you? I'm the one that they talked about that was the prophet to come. <laughs> so uh, he, he's, he's making them do their research. Well, who are you really? Well, I'm that guy Isaiah was talking about. Well, who was Isaiah talking about? The one who came in the spirit of Elijah. The one who was the prophet to pave the way for the Christ. And, uh, and these guys are the Pharisees, and they're constantly trying to trip up uh, John and Jesus and his disciples. And it says in verse 25, And they ask him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you, capital O there, whom you do not know. And it is he who's coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bathmara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So there was an identity associated to the Messiah that he was going to bring about a new kingdom. This is Old Testament prophecy. In order to be a part of the new kingdom, you have to be born into this family. So there was a thought, and they already had mikvah pools and baptisms in this day. That you're going to have this sense of being born again, Jews and Gentiles, and one big family. Well, how does that happen? Well, today we know from reading New Testament, only in baptism. That's the only way. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verses 26 and 27 is we're born into the child, as children of God, born into uh, the new kingdom. And it is because we have been covered by the blood of Jesus, it says that. And then, so not just being baptized, but then living as a new uh, member of the family. So in John 3, when he says, if you want to be born again, how do you do that? If you want to be brought into the kingdom, it's water and spirit. And so John is briefly touching on that here because he's saying, I'm not Elijah, but what is happening now is what was prophesied in the Old Testament. The kingdom is at hand. And, uh, and then I love how it closes out there when he says, I, I mean, I, I, Jesus is coming. And when he gets here, I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. That's quite a statement. Um, We'll also see him saying, uh, he must increase, and I must decrease. That's a lot of humility. Ben? Uh, also, it's probably the fact that the apostles were both thinking about or followers of John or that type of thing. Yes. Maybe, maybe most of them. In fact, uh, we know James and John and Peter and Andrew were. Uh, it's possible Nathaniel was. So there are a couple others. Matthew, maybe. Jesus went and called him from the tax collector's booth, but could have been the majority of them were disciples of John. Yeah, so We can see from these verses that the crowd and Pharisees that, that came to question John, many of them had not done their homework. Yeah. And that they had lost most of their spirituality. Yeah. They uh, were of the mind and all of this is, is physical, you know. Right? right. And physical seems to be easier. That's the reason why people created gods that they can worship, is they can manipulate it. They can move it here and there. They can talk for it. Um, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, you know, and the, and the wizard's behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, how can those stone images speak? Well, somebody said, I know what they're saying. I speak their language. And... 
because of their uh, spiritual power, they can interpret what the idol wants. And it's very dangerous, but in, in these days, they had to make a choice. If they wanted to follow Judaism, they could either just try to keep to themselves in their synagogues, or they would have to go all in, which means they spent a lot of time in Jerusalem during the three feast days. They offered all their tithes as they were supposed to. But you would be... Uh, I don't know if you want to use the word offended. I would be offended. When Jesus cleanses the temple, think about all the people that would have seen that event and probably said, it's about time somebody did something. Because the Pharisees are clearly corrupt. So you, you've got a choice. If you want to be a Jew in this day, you either kind of keep to yourself in your synagogue and you, you, know, you, you offer sacrifices on the feast days. You get to Jerusalem once a year, if you have to, three times a year. But no more than that. Uh, or you're all in. You believe that the Pharisees are the greatest teachers that have ever walked the planet. And there's no prophets in this day. So they're just dependent on the rabbis and the teachers to teach everything that's true. Yeah. The Jews, uh, I guess a good analogy in this present time is someone that's been brought up a Catholic. Mm -hmm. Many times when they study the Bible and come to the realization that Catholicism is not the true religion, right. when they make that choice, they have to be determined to give up their family, their friends, right. all the people that they have been associated with. And many times this is the, the whole hindrance yeah. of somebody accepting the Word of God. Yeah, you're right. And it's going to cause a great conflict when people who are following Jesus are also Jews by birth because their family is going to continue to expect them, even though they follow Jesus, to keep the feast days, to offer the sacrifices. That's their family reunions. You know, you and how awkward would it be for you to go to a family gathering and it be a religious purpose and you're a Christian, you're not a Jew anymore. You say, well, I don't offer sacrifices anymore. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Oh, come on. Here we go again, you know. Many Jews, uh, up until this time, if you became a member of another religion, or if you even walked away as a, what we would say, an atheist, they had a funeral for you. You were dead to them. And I, I frequently mention that that, to me, is probably one of the most amazing parts of Luke 15 that we miss. Because Luke 15, when the prodigal son comes home, you know, they're like, oh, he was on the porch and he was waiting for him and he runs out to meet him and he loves him and he's glad he's home. If that father needed to have access to all of his inheritance, he would have had to have begged, borrowed, hopefully not stolen anything, to get the money to hand his kid half of everything he had. You know, or at least at this point, probably it's a third of everything he had. So if... If he's done that, and they've had a funeral for him, and he's dead, it makes sense when he says, the brother who is dead is, is alive again, that he was fair game. Because there were other neighboring farms that probably were impacted by this kid's selfishness. And so, and if, you, if, you, if the older brother has anything to do with it, he wanted him to stay dead. You know, and, and so when he comes running up that road, the father running to him and embracing him is not just he's glad to see him, but it's a protection. He's got to get that son and get him in the house. 
His brother could kill him. Anybody could kill him. He is dead to the Jewish nation. And, uh, and he brings him back to the house. And then he says, not only are you alive, I'm going to put a robe on you and a ring on you and sandals on you. And all of this. And, and the brother is just mad as fire. He won't even come home and eat. I mean, it's that bad. And so the father loves the son, but really it's about rescuing his son. So if you're, if you're a Jew and you become a Christian uh, in this day, some of them probably would have had funerals for him. They would have... They would have said, we're going to, have, we're going to mourn the loss of so-and-so because they're no longer part of our family. We're disconnected forever. And Aren't there Jews today that do believe in Jesus? They do. They're called Messianic Jews. And there are some people that will leave. I've known of some, even a, one of my closest friends in college, at International Bible College. Uh, he, after he graduated school, uh, he left the church and became a Messianic Jew. Uh, and so uh, it was a kind of a shock to us, uh, but... Uh, he, he believes that uh, you still have principles of the Old Covenant you have to keep. It's not sacrifices, but you do keep Sabbath and you do uh, keep kosher and things like that. Um, and I understand the dilemma because it's hard to leave your family. See, as Judaism, it's about, like Lewis said, with, with Catholicism, that's, you're entrenched in it. Like, you can't even have, you can't have holidays can you imagine Christmas for a Catholic not going to Mass? Imagine what that would look like. You know, you better have a pretty good excuse. So like, you're, you're, every special holiday, I mean, we talk about down here, we see Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, and then what's the next day? Ash Wednesday. And they put the dot of ash in the middle of their forehead. Uh, Easter, we talk about, you know, Good Friday and then, and then Easter Sunday. So if you're entrenched in that religiously, it's also your family culture. So Jews had to give up their family, and they had to give up their, their inheritance and their cultural differences, and becoming a Christian, what does that look like? And they wrestled with it for a few years. Uh, they wrestled with circumcision. Should you be circumcised? That's a simple question. If you're a Jew becoming a Christian, or if you're a Jew that becomes a Christian, you've been circumcised, and you find out half the church is a bunch of Gentiles, and they haven't been, well, then you don't want them to marry your children, because they're dirty. You know, they're not, they're not the same. Uh, and this is one of the early problems of the first century church, is racism, prejudice. And, and some would leave the church over it. They could not fellowship with someone who was of a different uh, background, whether a Jew, Gentile, uh, pagan, uh, whatever. And I find that very, you know, discouraging, especially because the probably the most influential uh, African... Uh, minister was the Ethiopian eunuch. And he's converted in Acts chapter 8. I mean, he's one of the first guys that we really get a view of him going to a completely different country to take the gospel. And Philip converts him. So the Ethiopian eunuch, here's this guy, he's an African guy who goes back to his uh, country. And we believe that, uh, from tradition anyway, that he, he led to what is now seen as the Coptic Christian uh, church. It's the kind of the continuation. They're their, uh, their branch of Christianity. And so he was very influential. But we've got, we can't allow, they could not allow, and we cannot allow that the, the race become an issue. Um, it, it's very, very sad when that happens. And so Jews and Gentiles are going to have to come together. And, uh, and that's, where, that's where he's going to go next. You see the race thing a lot. <clears throat> you see that a lot. Yeah. And you know, I, I guess it's just not, not me being naive. Um, 
I take it personal. I probably shouldn't. Um, hang on, so let me drink. You need some water? I'm good. I, got, I always have plenty. Thank you. Um, I, my mom, my family, both sides, we're, we're Cherokee Indian. But my mom was raised part of her life. My uncle, or my aunt, and my uh, grandparents were on a Navajo reservation. So our family spoke Navajo. Uh, I have some jewelry and things from my grandparents. They, you know, they rented the turquoise jewelry and all that stuff from the Navajo people. My mom made Indian bread. You know, y'all had biscuits and cornbread. We had Indian bread. And uh, we had beans and rice. And uh, we ate a lot of meals that were traditionally Indian meals. Um, so I was raised that, you know, we're, we, I don't speak, I have, I know two words in Navajo, that's it. Yata hey, Bina, hello friend, that's all I know. I'm done, but, uh, so then we have uh, my aunt, who was raised on this same reservation with my mom, her daughter, they, they adopted a girl that's, um, a black girl, and she's my first cousin. And so, uh, we had a lot of issues early on with people uh, looking down on us. And so when we moved to Oklahoma, it was like, because we were on a res we were near a reservation. So like I, everybody looked like me, you know, and I'm not quite as tan as I used to be, but when I do, it's, um, it's there. And so, uh, I've experienced that. Like we, we would have to, when my cousin was going to school, they finally homeschooled, but people would make fun of us. You know, it was always comments like the wood pile, you know, and, uh, tar baby and, uh, things like that, and so I it, it bothered me a lot. It bothered me a lot. So I learned early on, try to as best as I can not see color. And so when things and I speak Spanish partly, I've gone to Spanish-speaking countries, and I love working with people from different places. But uh, so coming from my perspective, I, I came from a culture where pretty much people got along, you know, and then moving further south, I thought, well, things have changed. They really have. But some, in some cultures, with some people, it hadn't changed at all. Um, and we've got to try. I know um, it's hard, me being from, I mean, I've lived in Foley longer than I've lived anywhere in my life. But um, being from other places, some of us have seen cultures learn to adapt. But... Um, I think the church needs to be the model example. Like we should be the example. This is where unity is. Uh, I love that we're becoming a multicultural church. You know, everybody's got a soul, right? You know, not just white people. Yeah. You know, not just white people. Right. Indian people, Spanish yes. people, Mexican people, yes. black people. Everybody's right. got a soul. Everybody does. We got to learn that. We got to yeah. understand that. Yeah. And the South was notorious. Yeah, when I was young, it was bad. Yeah, I had for I taught Tay how to drive and drove him to school for a year, however long, maybe a year and a half, and would he would work with me here on Wednesdays. So we would I would take him to school, and then after school I'd pick him up and bring him here, and we would work until church on Wednesday night. So the being a Bible room, he helped me build. Uh, we did a ton of cleaning, ton of moving stuff, and we also did some fun projects together. He helped me put together bags for the kids and all kinds of stuff like that. So I had a great opportunity to spend time talking to him about this issue. And, uh, of course, he sees, he, he sees things different, I guess, uh, for lots of reasons. But um, you know, he says that his family feels that they're still, they're, very, they're still afraid to go out places. They're still afraid to go to certain churches. Because as soon as they do, somebody says something. 
or somebody leaves, and then it becomes a, a church problem. Um, and I don't know where they're, they're especially with children, like Tay's now a grown man, but I don't know anybody that could, could say that they didn't want Natalia Gill or Shruthi to be in our Bible classes. I don't know anybody would be willing to say that. I don't, I don't know anybody would be willing to say that I don't think Orlando should lead singing. I don't know that anybody would be willing to say that out loud. But there are people who think those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of them are online. And so uh, asking questions. And so we have to be the example as a church to say we love everybody no matter what. And I, I think that's the image of the church. Uh, Jesus isn't white. The majority of heaven isn't going to be white. So we, we have to kind of get past that. And yeah. It depends on the part of the country that you go to as to who you hate. Right. They've still got haters in New York that cannot stand Irish people. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's a part of the country that you go to. And uh, if you want to be accepted at first, you got to hate the ones they hate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because they don't understand anybody that doesn't. Right. Yeah, that's the, and it's just the culture you're raised in. So like, yeah. if, you're, if, you're, if you're raised in a culture where you say certain things, and, you know, we have fun little things, you know, with our football teams. You know, I, I, I jokingly do the same thing with states. I had a lady, I really upset her at Gulf Shores. I got up and I announced all the states were present. You know, we got some here from Kansas and Arkansas and Florida. And I said, we've got some folks here from Tennessee. We're so glad you're here. And I, and I said, uh, you know, I lived in Tennessee once. I was there seven months. Got out as fast as I could. <laughs> so just making a joke. And she was furious. Her and her husband were waiting, you know, with the toe tag for me to finish greeting. And I thought, what is she upset about? And uh, she's like, you shouldn't say stuff like that's offensive to visitors. I said, I was making a joke. She's like, well, it's not funny to me. She's like, we've been in Tennessee our whole life. I said, well, I've lived in Tennessee. I've driven through Tennessee. I do vacations in Tennessee. I love Tennessee. I said, I was just making a joke that I only lived there for a short time. And so, uh, but, but some people do. They take their, their sports teams seriously. They take their, where they're from uh, seriously. Uh, I do not, I don't root for Missouri. I do not, uh, I travel there once a year usually. I have no desire to live there. That's where some of my family still lives. But I love Alabama. I love, I love LA. I, I, I will live here till I die if I can. I love it. I love the people here. I love the culture here. Yeah. My dad's parents immigrated from Ireland, and their name was O'Farrell, but they dropped O because of the persecution. Yeah. And a lot of Irish people did do that because they were persecuted. Sure did. And they'll drop the, the Mick on words, too. We had some family members that did that. They just changed the spelling. And it's because they're afraid of how somebody will look at them if they're well, um, the Dakotas. Yeah. You have so many people that came from Sweden. Yeah. In the Nordic countries up there, up in Yemeni, you know. Yeah. But they, when they came through New York, they made them change their name. Right. Because the people that was documenting them could not spell or even yeah have any idea. Yeah, of how to put their names down. Oh, right. your name's Swanson. Yeah, you know, because he could spell. Right, right. 
Well, there's a lot of cities that they established cities and they've had names that people have thought about changing. They have like it's a culture, but I mean, if you drive through Louisiana, good luck. There's some, I mean, I, there's some cities that I will butcher because I can't figure out how to pronounce it. And uh, you know, it took me a while to say Diverville. You know, so um, there are certain ta- names and things we may be raised with it, but when you're not from there. Uh, you get confused by it. But the, the hard part is, too, for our culture today, and this is where we as the church have to be somewhere in the middle, is there is a, a representative group, and they're a small group. They want you to think they're a big group, but they're a small group that is intentionally trying to make, and they'll use words like white privilege. They'll use words uh, and phrases that talk about how to, to shun those that are more Caucasian. Uh, and because of that, there is this, you know, I hate to use the term whitewash, but there tends to be this group of people that wants to change everything and substitute, um, you know, white for black. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's the reverse of blackface. But we, we look at it and we go, well, that's just, that is what it is. But some people, become so offended by that that they then lash out and they say, you know, I know when, when Ariel, the movie came out, Little Mermaid, people went nuts because Ariel was a, a black mermaid. And I think it's interesting because she's in the depth of the ocean. You know, there's not any sunlight down there. So, uh, but, but, but they, people just went all the pieces, you know, Wonder Years, great TV show. They came out with a black version of it. You know, they, the, the Honeymooners, they came out with a, a, an African-American version of it. And I was listening to a talk show, and a guy, he was like, I think that's exactly what we should do. We should take all these shows and, and, and make it to where you can see it from a black perspective. And the guy goes, well, I wouldn't do Sanford and Son with two white guys. And the guy goes, well, that's different. And he said, how's that any different? So our culture has got to learn to kind of to tone down a little bit, tone down this this anger and fear between, and the media does that to us. They make us, they play us against each other. And, uh, and we, we have to somewhere meet in the middle and say, we want to recognize black culture. And we want to recognize white culture, whatever that culture may be. We want to recognize Hispanic culture. And, and we want to be able to learn to live in peace. We're kind of a melting pot anyway. Yeah. So, pay attention. The advertisement on TV, the last two years, yeah. has changed. Yeah. Uh, different yes, and if you'll notice, there's a lot of homosexual couples. You may not notice it. There's two guys standing there doing laundry. Uh, there's two guys doing dishes. Uh, there's two women shopping for food. It's little things like that. Now they've got transgender cartoon characters and all kinds of stuff going on because our children, they feel like, need to be exposed to that agenda earlier in life. And it's just... It's, it's terrible, but it, it's happening, yeah. Well, this is our highly intellectual people that think they right. know more than any of us. Yeah. They want to go back and rewrite history. Right. And, uh, you know, they may be correct in some instances. Yeah. But you cannot go back and re-educate everybody that's in the later part of their life. Right. You yeah. know, this is the way they learn. Well, I, in counseling, we call that gaslighting. And that, that means that uh, I cannot alter the present, but I can alter the future by rewriting the past. And so your stories will be, you'll take a character that is beloved, 
and they will rip them. You know, we, we used to think, and this is I'm not a prophet, I'm just saying that this is, this is where I think the next stage will go. But a few years ago, they were going nuts, tearing down as many Confederate soldier statues and, and flags and everything like that. Well, the next stage is, and they're already starting, anybody who owns slaves. So that includes George Washington, who's on our coins, who has two, one territory and one state named after him, and is the prominent name as a founding father of the country. So they have got to remove him. Gonna, there's going to be removal of pictures, removal of, in history, that the first president we should really talk about is Thomas Jefferson. Though he owned slaves, he wrote the Constitution and originally intended for it to be part of the Constitution that they would uh, nullify slavery. They'd already done it in Great Britain. He was watching what was happening with the French Revolution. Thomas Jefferson was a very wise guy, but he could not get the southern states to vote on that. So if they wanted to keep them united, united, you know, the 13 colonies, they had to allow that temporarily. And so, but the culture today, they don't learn the history. All they learn is we were horrible for a couple hundred years. And that will in turn be on all of our forefathers too, which is a rewriting of history. You've got to take George Washington out. You've got to take, you know, all these, uh, all these presidents and, and so forth. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was... That's right. Yeah, and so uh, there's a lot, a lot of that that goes on. Um, the retelling of history. We just have to be careful that we we keep books. Do not depend upon the internet or videos. AI has control of that. You need books. Any book you see, old world books. You see stuff that will be as valuable in the future as as water. Because you've got to know where we came from. Yeah, Terry. Yeah, it's like Mr. Lewis was just saying about they're trying to rewrite history. Those of us, that, you know, in this room particularly, or even our age, they're trying to do the same thing about God, mm -hmm. with, the, with the transsexual movement, the homosexual, yeah. you know. They're trying to say God honors this, you know, God's for this. You know, and it, my thing is, you know, read Romans chapter 1. Right, right. <laughs> you know, that just... Well, you'll hear people say things like, well, Benjamin Franklin was a cross-dresser, you know, yeah. and you just yeah. go, oh, okay. I mean, is that true? Well, you accept it because somebody told you that. Uh, and, and children are very impressionable. If you're going to teach certain things to them, like, I can't imagine, I can't imagine, and I know you can't imagine, sitting in a classroom as a kindergartner and have somebody come in and go, now you get to decide what gender you want to be today. <laughs> in fact, you can choose a cat or a dog today. And in a moment, we're going to bring in a new teacher. And they are going to be reading a book about transgender issues. And when we were growing up, I remember something about somebody's two moms book or something. Well, it's far past that now. It's way past that now. You'll the, these, and if you don't, if your school doesn't allow a transgender person to come in and, and, and dress up or a crossdresser to come in and read a book in your classroom, 
and the government's for it, well, they'll pull your funding. Your, your teachers will lose their jobs. It's a, it's a part of the system, and it all falls down. So every person has to be in fear. Teachers have to, every day, they have to teach in fear that if they say something about God and a kid's got a camera out, or if they say something about he or she and accidentally mispronounce the gender or mis misrepresent the gender of someone who's chosen a new gender today, then uh, they could lose their job. They could lose their, their pension. They could lose their retirement. And so it's, it's a ruling by fear. And that's, it goes back to communism. It's the very same. Socialism rules by fear. It's supposed to be all about love and everybody works together and we all share. But it's never like that. It's two classes. The small group on top and everybody else climbing at the bottom. I have I have a professor in college that said we get so open open minded that a brain falls out. <laughs> Alright, let's look down at verse um, twenty let's see, where were we? Twenty twenty-nine. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who took away the sin and takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him, that is upon Jesus, capital H, that I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So he says to the, to the critics, I'm not really a prophet. But yet he says, the prophet said the prophet was coming. Then he says, you know, I'm, I didn't really know who he was, but he clearly knew because he had a voice tell him. And so why would John say that? It's not that he's trying to be deceptive. The reason why is because Jesus had to reveal himself when he felt it was time. That's why his mother, when she finally gives him permission, if you want to look at it that way, she nudges him in John 2 to go ahead and perform the first miracle. The, the, to that point, Joseph knew. Mary knew. The wise men knew. Herod knew that Jesus was there and that he was the king. They knew he was the Messiah. Mary's known it since, since nine months before he came into the world. Okay, she's known. She was told by the angel. And so John is saying, you know, I didn't really know him. He's saying, I didn't want to, you know, know him as in share who he was. He knew there was something special about Jesus, but he waited until Jesus revealed himself. Uh, all he would say is, I'm telling you, I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. And, and the kingdom is coming. And so when he gets there to the baptism, that's when he says to him, this is the light of God. So finally, he acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah. Yeah. Scriptures say that John recognized Jesus when they were still in the womb. That's right. That's right. He leaped, which is a really, really neat story. Um, Mary stayed with Elizabeth until the baby was born. So that time that she was in her early stages of pregnancy, she stayed with her cousin, which is really neat because both of them could share stories. Here's this woman who's old, thinks she can't have kids, and here's this young lady who is too early to really be having kids, and she's having one. And they get to spend those months uh, thinking about their life. Matthew, you no, know, Luke is the one that does the songs. You know, they sing together. That's just, I love that.
It says again, verse 35, the next day John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus, he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which means to say translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed him, and Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and this is Andrew now, and said to him, we found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and, and, and uh, so he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you should be called Cephas, which means stone. We'll get more to that later on. And then lastly, real quick, uh, verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. So he's calling one by one. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. All right, so now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. That's the sea by the sea. He's got the fishing <laughs> business. So Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we found uh, him who, of the Moses, uh, whom Moses in the law uh, and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, this is, man, this is bad. Talk about racism. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, Philip said to him, come and see. Same words Jesus said. Same words. Where are you staying, Master? Where are you staying? Come and see. Where is the Messiah? He says, hey, come and see. Same thing Jesus said. Uh, then Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, and whom there is no deceit. And I love that because Jesus knows He's going to reveal here he knew where Nathaniel lived and where he had devotion. <laughs> he says, are you kidding me? The Messiah's a Nazarite. What comes out of Nazareth? I mean, that's trash. So he comes walking and Jesus goes, oh, it is the perfect Israelite. So this is, again, Jesus' humor. Uh, not lost on the reader if we see Nathaniel's attitude. So then... Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? You know, like, we've met before. Jesus answered and said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most surely I say to you, hereafter... You shall see heaven open and angels of God descending, uh, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So you think that's you think that's neat? I got more. There's more. I know. Yeah. Uh, another reason why Jesus, next reason why Jesus did the life of Jesus, because of his lineage, he was probably a true Jew. Right. Whereas the other may not be. Yes. Some of them may have been somewhere down the line a proselyte. Yeah, but he's a true Jew. He says, there's no deceit. This guy's a good guy. He reads his Bible. He has his devotion time. They put fig trees close to their house, a lot of fruit trees and things. But uh, one of the reasons apparently he had used it for was for shade. And so it'd be like, it'd be like Jesus walking up to you and say, hey, I saw you on the, lazy, the brown lazy boy on Friday. You know? Or, hey, I saw you earlier sitting on top of that international tractor in your backyard. You'd go, what? This is... <laughs> I saw you driving in on that accord. You know, you would be shocked if Jesus had details of your story. And he says, hey, earlier, you know, when he called you at the fig tree. And remember, he's walking to him. 
There's nobody that sent a message to him. And Nathaniel, when he's called, they have to go get him. They don't know where he's going to be. And Jesus has supernatural knowledge. And I saw you had a victory earlier. And he says, oh my goodness, you're the rabbi. You're him. And again, the feeling that he was so prejudiced before he got there, and now his mind has changed. Um, the funny thing is, talking about Nazareth, nothing good coming up from Nazareth. There were people in Nazareth that were Nazarenes that believed in not drinking alcohol and keeping very clean. So it's interesting that his assumption is they're not as good as him. He is super spiritual. So he may have had some background in uh, rabbinical teachings or scribal things, but whatever it was, this is a guy who's uh, kind of like the philosopher of the group. He's the smart one, I would say, of the group. He's had a lot of devotion time with God. All right. Any other questions? Okay, we made it. With, with, we were over one minute. Um, so to the next Wednesday, we will cover John chapter 2, and we will have your books. Uh, also, if you miss a class, they are online now. So I'm posting them there. Uh, that would be great. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, visit our website at rayreynoldswrap.com. If you'd like to contribute to the show, content suggestions, uh, questions, prayer requests, or even if you just want to reach out to us, you can email us at rayreynoldswrap at gmail.com. Have a great day as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.